Hello and welcome. This is an audio recording of an IFG live event. Hello and a very warm welcome to the Institute for Government. I'm Bronwyn Maddox. Delighted to welcome you to this event this afternoon on the government's use of science in the coronavirus epidemic. And that's going to be with Greg Clark, our chair of the Science and Technology Committee. And I'll introduce him in a moment. Let me go through some of the very basic housekeeping rules right at the start. We are obviously on the record. The hashtag is IFG Science, and you can also follow us on Twitter at IFG Events. And we are taking questions via Slido. So to submit your question, go to slido.com and then enter the code 8849, which I hope you could see on your screen now. And please do start sending them now because they tend to be a lot. They bunch up towards the end and and then we're picking through the best ones. Um, So please do start sending them. But with that, I'm delighted to welcome Greg Clark, who um, has made a great impact as the chair of the Science and Technology Committee. And obviously it has had a lot to say during the past year of crisis. He was also, of course, the Secretary of State for Business, Energy and Industrial Strategy from 2016 to 2019 and has had many, many other ministerial posts, including Minister for Cities, Financial Secretary to the Treasury, Minister of State at the Cabinet Office, Minister for Universities and Science and Secretary of State for Communities and Local Government. So a a great deal of experience there to bring to bear on this question, which in many ways has been the question of the day and one that uh, people in, um, in in all kinds of walks of life, however, and you can hear people talking about it as you pass them in the, in the parks and streets and so on, how to use science in making the decisions that affect absolutely everyone in the country. Well, with that, very warm welcome to Greg Clark. Uh, thank you, Bronwyn, and thank you for uh, inviting me and thank you for the work that the IFG has done um, in this area. Um, you, uh, you were kind enough to, uh, to say that we've had an impact. So I think it's probably... Um, uh, more accurate to say that the, the COVID has had an impact uh, on the work of the committee. Um, it was just over a year ago when the, the committee was elected and our work programme was expected to be uh, on the, the core but fascinating business of science and technology. And we weren't expecting that we would have the, the opportunity to ask on behalf of our colleagues in Parliament uh, questions throughout the pandemic of not just the scientists in this country, uh, but care of uh, Zoom calls uh, like this, witnesses from around the, the world. Um, and uh, I think the the reflection that I would make, and we published a report uh, a few weeks ago uh, on this that we can go into more details, is first of all to, uh, to be extraordinarily grateful for the uh, the wealth of scientific expertise and excellence uh, and the tradition of that that we have. And the committee has drawn on it extensively, not just hearing from those advising government uh, through SAGE uh, and other groups, but for people outside that might have different perspectives so that we've been able to get a, I think, a rounded picture, which we've communicated to uh, to colleagues. Um, the second thing to say is that uh, we concluded in the report, and as you know, select committees are cross-party and um, we all agreed, that the government has been serious about science through the pandemic and that it's made a serious attempt to convene serious scientists and to uh, take seriously their advice. Now, that's not to say that 
mistakes uh, and uh, missteps haven't been made um, by everyone uh, in this uh, pandemic. I think if we reflect back uh, a year ago, it would be astonishing if we hadn't. But in terms of the the volition and the motivation, uh, we felt that there was a, a seriousness uh, of purpose uh, here. Um, and the third thing that I would say is that you know, during that period, it's been extraordinarily demanding on scientists, not just those uh, who are in uh, on the the payroll of the uh, of the government, uh, one way or another, like the chief scientific advisor and the chief medical uh, officer, although their dedication and public service during this has been exceptional. But many people right across uh, the UK science base have uh, essentially devoted the whole year and most of their waking hours uh, to helping give us help give us the best uh, advice to how for how to proceed. And so. Uh, so we've benefited uh, from that. Um, there are some uh, some headline lessons that we can go into, um, but uh, we're conscious at this stage. Uh, we've got a committee. My committee um, has a uh, an inquiry with the Health and Social Care Select Committee that's chaired by Jeremy Hunt, and we've been taking evidence on some initial lessons learned, and we'll be publishing. The, the conclusions of that during the spring. So I don't want to uh, anticipate our conclusions there. But just in terms of some headline reflections from my perspective uh, as chair of the Science and Technology uh, Committee, uh, I think the, the one of the first things to share, and I know the IFG have shared this in their report, uh, is that uh, transparency uh, and openness uh, about science uh, has helped uh, and insofar as we started off not as transparent uh, as we are now, that's to say SAGE papers were not published, SAGE minutes were not published, SAGE membership was not published. The, the committee put some pressure uh, on SAGE and Sir Patrick Valance to, to be more transparent. He agreed to, to do that, to take uh, some of these measures, uh, and so far from that having been a problem, I think it's enhanced the credibility uh, of the the advice that the government uh, has been given. Uh, I suppose a second uh, reflection uh, is that one of the, I think the lessons we can draw from the first year so far is that one of the key challenges is that of anticipation, uh, whether it's test and trace, where we didn't have the capacity in place early enough uh, and didn't anticipate in the early autumn uh, the increased need for that. Or conversely, uh, on uh, on the development and deployment of vaccines, where I think there has been a substantial and very effective anticipatory uh, program, uh, that is one of the, the key features of a successful uh, response to the uh, pandemic, uh, it seems. Um, and perhaps a, uh, a third reflection before we uh, perhaps go into a conversation uh, around this uh, is that the, the distinction between the uh, what might have been traditionally termed as the, uh, as the pure scientific and what might have previously been thought of as the, the operational or the logistical, mm. uh, I think 
the experience has shown uh, is that that difference uh, is, uh, is sometimes unhelpful um, and has caused some problems. So uh, just to refer to the test and trace problems, we committee felt that in the early days, the, 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 the capacity that we had for testing and tracing was too much inclined by the scientific advisors uh, included to be taken as a given and that uh, that the, the the level of capacity dictated the strategy whereas if we had looked more as to what was possible around the world a greater imperative to develop that uh, capacity uh, might have helped and might have been a more prominent part of advice but there are some uh, some very broad reflections which are I'm very conscious uh, delivered through the lens of uh, hindsight, which was not available uh, at any point uh, during this pandemic until relatively recently. And so um, our, our lessons and learned. Thanks very much for that. Course, and and, and uh, your we'll point about hindsight. Point. Sorry. Yeah. Your point about hindsight is, is one that um, we've all got to uh, repeat in triplicate because obviously some things are easier to talk about now than they were um, at the beginning. But all the same, if we can go back to the beginning, you've said um, that you think the government was serious about science. On the other hand, the report that your committee put out um, has pointed to ways in which the government, all right, with hindsight, might be said to be to have been slow. And it wasn't at that point the scientists who were, in any sense, putting on the brake. It was other kinds of considerations about, well, maybe a degree of incredulity, a degree of not wanting to encroach on people's freedoms, certainly concern about the economy and so on. But it wasn't the science that was saying um, uh, that, that is, is, is slow down, uh, don't go into lockdown and so on. And so if you look back at those early months of treating uh, of how the government handled science, um, would you? How would you? How would you characterize it? Uh, well, they, so they talked a lot about back, following, the, following the science. On the other hand, did they? Yeah, I think one of the one of the big unknowns um, at the beginning of the pandemic was how quickly the response needed to be. We, we now know, through the benefit of hindsight, that the quicker the better. Um, but I don't think, on the part of uh, of anyone, including the scientists that what we know now about the, the pace of response was as evident then. Neil Ferguson, in evidence to the committee, uh, said that if we'd had the, uh, the lockdown earlier, then that would have saved many lives. But the, the advice, and looking back at the sage advice at the time, there was a sense of of bringing on or turning on some of the the restrictions gradually in keeping pace as it were with the uh, with the rate of transmission rather than pressing all the buttons uh, at the same time um, and there were there were good reasons uh, that the government i think was alive to the difficulties of doing that but the scientific advice reflect that. You'll recall that it was very much framed in terms of flattening the curve uh, during those early uh, weeks. Um, and, uh, and then only later was there, I think, a much more full spectrum response. Now, there are a number of uh, reasons for that. I mean, on the, 
on the science, uh, amongst the science advice on SAGE, um, were behavioral scientists. And it wasn't known uh, that the level of compliance with very yeah. stringent restrictions uh, would be as great as it was. It was uh, the, the adherence to the measures uh, was greater than the scientists uh, expected. Um, and I think that one of the, the reflections that the committee made was that uh, in some ways, if you take a scientific approach, then it's grounded in evidence. And sometimes it takes a little while for that evidence to be collected, analyzed and formed into recommendations. Um, and that may have uh, may have delayed some of the initial uh, mm. the initial speed of response. Mm. What do you make of this point about how to balance scientific advice with um, economic concerns, with uh, concerns about deaths from things that aren't coronavirus, with mental health, with loss of education, all, all these things? Um, do you think the government has now begun to um, get that into balance in the way, in the explanation that it offers people? Well, Bronwyn, I think it. I think it has from the outset, which is uh, one of the reasons why you know, some of those early measures were were not taken perhaps in the in the full spectrum way that they could have been. There was a concern for the the wider impact, um, and many of the witnesses, including Patrick Valance and Chris Whitty, uh, have said to us that the the real measure of the impact of, of COVID includes. Uh, it's ex- excess deaths. It, it includes uh, deaths from uh, from other other factors uh, than directly uh, from COVID. Whether that is from people not being able to access treatment um, or diagnosis for other conditions, through to the effect of uh, unemployment uh, on uh, on people's lives uh, in that sense. So that is that is understood. But one of the points that the the committee has made is that there's much less transparency uh, over the assessment of the the wider impacts uh, than there is now on the the epidemiology um, and the medical aspects. There is great transparency. The Sage papers uh, are now published; they're very clear. But we don't have the same level of transparency about the assessment um, on for example, the wider NHS, uh, and still less on the impact on employment and the economy. And it seems to us, and we recommended in our report, that we should have the same candor uh, of assessment uh, on those matters as we do on the, or might describe as the the more narrowly scientific aspects. Mm. And you'd extend that to things like uh, education education and the loss of education, to mental health, to... um, loss of some, some industries and so on. Yes. Uh, what we've seen throughout the pandemic on uh, in scientific advice is it's been published, it's been disclosed, it's been discussed wide, widely. Uh, I think people have a sense that the, these decisions are complex and difficult, mm. but people have a sense of how they're being made. I, I think some aspects uh, of the, the wider impact don't benefit from that same transparency, mm. and, and I think that they're very important, mm. uh, and they should. What should we make of the fact that about half of the country's deaths uh, from coronavirus have happened since the middle of November? 
And when other countries look at us, as they do all the time, uh, and I'm going to come on to vaccines in a moment, but but this is on the uh, less cheerful point of, of, of the number of deaths, um, that a lot have happened relatively late in the day when presumably some of these lessons should have been learned. And this is from a government making, uh, putting great emphasis on its use of science. Uh, that's true, uh, Bronwyn, but I don't want to uh, exceed my um, the reflections that we've made as, mm. as a committee. Uh, on this, what we've been looking at is uh, is principally uh, before then, and no doubt we will look into what are the uh, what are the causes and what can be what, what this can be attributed to. Clearly, the the experience of the new variants uh, is one of the uh, features in that. But since the committee hasn't taken evidence on on precisely that point on the uh, the most recent. Uh, level of, uh, of, uh, of deaths, then I wouldn't want to, uh, I wouldn't want to kind of freelance on that. Well, all right. Um, uh, fair play. Uh, but um, if I take you into something that is the, the, um, the heart of, of what the committee does, uh, which, is, which is SAGE itself, yes. and, and something you have looked at. And um, I think we'd all appreciate your thoughts on, on SAGE, how it's been working. It's there to give, it's obviously, an enormous group of people. In fact, it's really, I think, much larger with all its subcommittees than people sometimes realise, uh, is there to give the government in the end a kind of uh, agreed view. On the other hand, uh, all these uh, scientists have their own independent reputations. They pop up individually on the, on the media. And I wondered how you thought this was working. So I think, I think it's a good thing that, that science and scientists have been prominent within this. Um, the first thing is to, to say is that when people talk about the science, as you know, Bronwyn, that there is no such thing as the science. Um, it is uh, the, the essence of science uh, is that it is vigorous, contested, and people put forward theories that are then subject to, uh, to very rigorous examination. Um, and, uh, and that is the basis of our scientific uh, excellence. Um, and SAGE, I think, has reflected that. It isn't um, a group of just two or three hand-picked people. I think there's been a serious attempt by Sir Patrick and others to to bring together uh, experienced and eminent people in the relevant fields. Nor has there been uh, any attempt to, uh, to, to suggest that there is a single view there. Uh, Sir Patrick Valence has been very clear with the committee that what he and Chris Whitty have done as the co-chairs uh, is to distill the the advice to be given to to government, but not to pretend that it's uniform uh, advice. And so that that I think is a is a mature and healthy reflection uh, of the, the the different perspectives. And consistent with that, uh, I my view is that having scientists appear. Uh, in the media, on public platforms, to talk about their own work um, and to explain directly uh, what their their views and uh, thoughts are on particular aspects of the pandemic, uh, I think that is, I think that's a good thing, and I w- would not want to to see a a restriction uh, on people's ability to uh, to speak, perhaps even when they take a a different view from. Uh, from the actions that have been taken by government under advice. Mm. Obviously, turning to one of the more cheerful points, uh, the, the UK is getting um, 
a great deal of uh, relief, um, I would say pleasure, from, from the uh, performance of vaccines and some of the homegrown vaccines as well. Um, how much of that, there was government support for, for, for some of the Oxford um, venture at, at really a very early stage, long before coronavirus came on the scene. What do you think the UK can do from this point to, to build on those and encourage this kind of thing? Well, I think there will be uh, lessons to learn from the success of the, um, of the vaccines programme. Um, first of all, that success depends crucially on the existence of a very strong and deep and broad science base uh, in this country, and that is something that shouldn't be taken for granted, but needs to be needs to be prized and needs to be invested in. Uh, but on top of that, I think there was an agility uh, on the part of government and the funding bodies to to fund well the the, the development uh, of potential vaccines, and that was absolutely right uh, and appropriate. The, the the regime we have in this country of uh, clinical trials uh, again has been carefully developed and developed further during this pandemic to be to be agile, whilst rigorous, um, and to be world leading in terms of you know, being a good place to uh, to assess uh, potential new uh, vaccines and, uh, and treatments. So I think that's been very effective, um, and then the. I think the what I referred to earlier is the the anticipation, the the work that the vaccines task force uh, engaged in in anticipating future needs at risk before it was even known that any of these uh, vaccines uh, would would pass the the hurdle uh, of the clinical trials uh, to to start to put in place procurement and indeed manufacturing. Um, was, I think, a good exercise of foresight. Um, and it all reflects a very good collaboration between universities, research institutions, um, the government, uh, private sector, uh, and the NHS, which I think is, I think has much to commend itself uh, as to how to proceed in the future. Hmm. It doesn't reflect a particularly good collaboration between countries. And this is something we've seen right across the the world uh, of countries uh, wanting to work together, maybe, uh, and scrambling for their own advantage um, as, 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 as they come under pressure. What do you think the impact has been of, of Brexit? And I'm not thinking so much on the distribution of vaccines, but on the distribution of scientists. Well, I think it's uh, in terms of international collaboration, Actually, the portfolio of vaccines that um, that is now available and is licensed, I think, does reflect um, uh, actually quite a wide and deep and successful uh, international collaboration. A lot of the uh, the trials were were done in Brazil, for example, at a time when levels of infection uh, were high there but low here. Um, many of the uh, all of the uh, the drugs companies and many of the researchers operated internationally. And I think that has been crucial. I think you know, science uh, science doesn't respect boundaries, and scientific collaboration across borders uh, has very clearly been part of the uh, of the success to date. And even the trials in South Africa, AstraZeneca on the, the new variant, um, show the the continuing importance uh, of that. So I think that has been very important. Uh, clearly, the uh, 
I think it's the the bodies that bring together uh, nations for other purposes, whether it's procurement um, or these kind of collective decisions. They clearly have not been um, working uh, with anywhere near the success that the uh, the the scientists and the and the research institutes themselves have, um, and uh, the lessons of that I think need to be uh, reflected on. We're not uh, we're not over this yet because clearly we're going to get to the point in which the the distribution uh, around the world uh, of the available vaccine supplies clearly does require international co- collaboration, and it's both you know, both morally and in terms of our self interest we've got a, a strong uh, interest and strong imperative uh, to do that. And I hope that this may be better than what we've seen uh, during the early months of the, the level of that, um, that international collaboration by, in, by uh, institutions bringing governments together. What about the way in which the UK is acting as a sort of lab for the world in, in our use of vaccines? Um, the the uh, decision to have a, a, a three month gap between the first and second doses, uh, process, and small tests now about mixing and matching doses and so on. Um, how do you how do you think um, the government should make these these decisions? And um, is it is it is it, uh, is it now part of what Global Britain offers to the world a kind of agility, but an ability to treat itself as as an experiment? Well, so I think it's agility rather than uh, to, to to treat itself as an experiment. Um, the key thing is that this these are done uh, these trials and the the licensing decisions are done rigorously, and I think it's because the MHRA, for example, uh, has a high and unimpeachable reputation for uh, for rigor and integrity as. Does the, the the institutions um, that have participated in this and the uh, the oversight of clinical trials uh, in this country are acknowledged to to be of high standard? Um, that I think is that I think is an asset uh, for us, and the fact that we we have in this country a, a collection of individuals and institutions that are able rapidly to to develop and test new treatments uh, and drugs, I think is an, uh, an asset uh, for us. In fact, the, when I was the, the business secretary that you uh, mentioned at the, the beginning, uh, we, we embarked on an industrial strategy, and a key part of that was a life sciences uh, industrial strategy that very much had in mind that we should make use of the, the thought leadership that we had in these fields to be able to to leverage that and to to be a place that researchers from around the world could either work in or work with um, mm. to the benefit of everyone. And so uh, so I think that is a positive um, mm. uh, aspect of it, but it does rest on and require rigorous regulatory standards that we enjoy in this country. And so these decisions are not are not for politicians, they're not for uh, for governments, but they are for the, the independent regulatory authorities. Mm. What's your committee going to look at next? So we uh, we're looking. We've got a joint inquiry with the health committee on lessons learned, uh, as I mm-hmm. mentioned. Um, but clearly, the uh, our purpose throughout this has been to to continue to take evidence uh, on COVID uh, on 
the issues of the day mm. um, for quite apart from being able to learn the lessons. I think there are a couple of other reasons. Uh, one is that it provides the ability for Parliament to ask questions of and understand um, what is the basis for policy. So we have a session next week um, on the uh, on the steps to uh, to release some of the the lockdown measures, um, if, when, and how they should be uh, released, and we'll be uh, questioning policymakers uh, and scientists uh, around that. Uh, we had a session last week, and we'll be following this up on on the test and trace system. It seems to us that as we come out of lockdown, uh, unless and until the virus is eradicated, we're going to rely quite heavily on the effectiveness of the test and trace mm-hmm. system. Uh, so we want to uh, understand that. So, uh, so we'll be asking questions uh, and hopefully generating some understanding of the uh, the policies that are going to be policy steps that are going to be taken. Mm. Uh, there's also a, a feature one can one can do this all retrospectively um, at the end of the pandemic. But we think there's a value in interviewing people uh, during the pandemic to to capture what was in their thoughts and in their intentions at the time, so that not everything has to be completely through the lens of hindsight. We can understand what people thought at the time, and that's part of our purpose as well. Um, apart from that, we've got um, other inquiries. We're about to uh, start a, a big inquiry into the role of hydrogen uh, in getting to uh, net zero, uh, for example. Uh, we are uh, looking at the, the role of science and technology in recovering uh, from, uh, from COVID, and we will have many others during the, uh, during the year ahead. All right. Um, We'll look forward to that. One of the very current questions is about whether the government ought to um, impose quarantine on people coming from every country uh, rather than just the the list of um, of 33. Uh, And this is something the opposition is pushing very hard on. Does that come within um, the the scope of what you're looking at too? Yes. So we'll be looking at this as part of the the inquiry to to understand the next steps uh, on this. We it's, it's one where the scientific advice might seem to say, look, a lot of new variants around in the world. And if we're going to get on top of this, we really need to have as, as, as tight measures as we, as we possibly can. And yet that isn't quite where the government is at the moment. And we've got reports of division within the cabinet itself on this. Well, I think it's uh, I think it's a, a little more nuanced than, than that in the, in the sense that, uh, first of all, in terms of variants, um, we have an ability to uh, to spot variants and uh, understand them more than other uh, countries uh, here. And so uh, one of the things that seems to me we need to do is to make sure that that, um, that ability is shared with other countries, um, because in a global pandemic, having one country alone acting on that information uh, is clearly not as powerful as that being communicated everywhere. Um, the second uh, reflection, through, the, through the, the early course of the pandemic, um, the advice was not to have a generalised uh, ban on, uh, on entry because for much of that time, there were more people as a proportion of the population with COVID within our shores than there were outside. Um, and so if you were to if you were to quarantine and to isolate people, actually, those people coming into the country were less likely to have COVID than people within the, the country. 
Now, that obviously uh, would change if we get to, to the position in which we have very low levels of COVID and other places have higher levels. So I think it is contingent uh, on how we are, what the the state of uh, the spread of COVID is in this country compared to, to others. What do you think ministers ought to understand about things like modelling, statistics, all um, right, economics, um, science, if you, if you like? It's something we look at, we, we, we offer... Um, um, if, you, if you like, professional development for ministers who often parachuted into their, their, their first job without um, uh, a lot of background in in, in, in in what the subject might be. Now, of course, they may have a scientific background, but they may well not. And um, from your your experience, what would you what would you say they need to know? Well, I think the uh, it would be unusual for a, a minister, indeed impossible for a minister, to have the the depth of uh, of knowledge. That any of the the specialist advisors that they uh, they have in this, whether it's modelling or uh, other aspects of the pandemic, this seems to me the uh, the key skill and duty uh, of a minister is to be is to be tenacious and thorough in questioning and understanding the basis of the advice that is being given, uh, not simply to. Uh, to accept it and at face value, but really to interrogate it. And all of the, the ministerial positions that I've held, um, perhaps we might have some of my uh, officials on the on the call, but I think they would reflect that that you know, if you're if you're to do your job, then you need to to ask the difficult questions to satisfy yourself that you've understood the advice. Uh, not least if it then falls to you to. Uh, to weigh that advice up against others. We talked about some of the, the wider impacts. Um, that is something that you know, requires, if you're to do that, if you're to combine them, then I think you need to uh, to be pretty pretty versed uh, in the the arguments and the, the evidence and the basis uh, for it. Mm. Yeah, well, thanks. thanks for that. You queried right at the beginning my use of the word impact about your committee. Would you like to be back in government? Oh, I'd uh, I'd love being in, in government, and anyone that um, is in public service, I think I would think would want the the chance to be able to uh, to put into practice um, the you know, the thoughts and the insights and the experience that you have. And nine years in in government, um, you develop a lot of experience, and um, you can't you can't help but but think that you know some of it could be. Uh, of use, but I'm very privileged to uh, to have the as chair of the committee the opportunity in probably the most important uh, issue that uh, the Parliament has faced for you know, for a couple of generations um, the ability to to play a role in perhaps doing some of this questioning and providing some um, what I hope is constructive advice to uh, uh, to those that have the privilege of being in government. Okay, well, thank you for that. I, I would take that as a yes, because it was a yes. <laughs> let me um, let me get in some questions. Uh, uh, we've got some very good ones coming in. Let me start with one from Hartley Miller, who says, um, and this goes back to your point about the, the very nature of science. How should the government deal with reasonable, um, it's in brackets, uh, differing views amongst scientists? How much recognition and explicit discussion is appropriate? And in what forum? So I think you have to have that. Um, I think you have to license uh, discussion and disagreement. Um, 
as I say, it's the nature of, uh, of, of science. And to, to pretend on a question there might be a single view if there isn't, uh, I think would, be, would undermine the, the credibility of the case that was being made. Um, and, uh, and one of the things that the, the publication of the, the evidence that SAGE has taken and the SAGE minutes uh, has one of the consequences of that is that people have been invited to, uh, to scrutinise and to see uh, the, the basis uh, of decisions. Um, and so far from that having undermined confidence in, in exposing the fact that some people disagree and, um, and some people disagree with the papers that have been submitted, actually, I think it's had the opposite effect. I think people see that there are proper scientific discussions that inform advice uh, rather than it being one-dimensional and, and only those of, as it were, approved views. Hmm. Okay, th- thanks very much indeed for that. Got an interesting one from um, from uh, Frank Lovett saying, to what extent do you consider that devolved powers um, have hindered the, the UK in its response to COVID-19? And also, we, we, you know, we look around the world, we look at other countries that have devolved or federal structures, and sometimes I'm thinking of the US, it, it can look like a, a complication too far. There are obviously others like Germany where... Right, goes so, smoothly. But in our case, what do you think? So we wrote uh, the committee wrote a letter to the prime minister in May, and one of the the reflections that we made was that um, the cooperation in the UK between the um, the nations of the UK, uh, England, Scotland, Wales, and Northern Ireland, um, was uh, was a good thing um, and should continue. Uh, and there may be different policies that are pursued by following the the political decisions, policy decisions that are made by ministers in the different assemblies. But it would be be desirable to have a a common approach to to scientific advice. Um, And the chief medical officers of the, the nations have, and they would say to you, I think have had a very close working relationship which continues um, and so I think that has been effective. Now, w- w- one could say, uh, thinking as a kind of thought experiment, well, what if we had sort of completely different approaches um, uh, and completely different advice being taken in the different nations? Doesn't this provide uh, a sort of laboratory to see what works best in a kind of similar population? On balance, uh, it seems to me that in terms of trust and confidence, the idea that people are working together from the different nations of the, the UK, I think that has been a, a positive thing. Okay. Um, we could do a whole session almost on that, but uh, and indeed we might, um, but, not, but not right now. Let me take in one from Mark, who says, to what extent do you feel that vaccination should be approached on a more global basis uh, that is more, more sharing between countries, especially due to the risks of future virus hotspots leading to variants which could result in vaccine escape? Uh, clearly, because the, the pandemic is, is global, uh, we have a collective interest, as I said, a kind of moral as well as um, uh, self-interest in making sure the world is protected uh, as soon as possible. 
Um, I think one of the one of the benefits of the approach that we've taken here in uh, in investing in anticipation on multi, multiple different vaccines is that we've accelerated the the production and the manufacture of vaccines to the point that we will have more than we need and that i think puts us in the in the fortunate position of being able to to lead an international conversation as to how we get them into into the hands or the arms of uh, of those that need them around the world and i think that is a good position for the uk to be in but it but it required it was based on i think a certain vigor um and and prescience on the part of the the domestic authorities here in the uk to invest in that capacity that now puts us in that favorable position whereas i think if we had uh, as we were talking about earlier i think if we'd waited for a wholly international approach uh, to this through international institutions then mm. we possibly wouldn't or I, I certainly wouldn't be as far advanced as we are and therefore having the possibility before very long to be able to uh, to share um, the the product of this uh, with the the rest of the world mm. okay we've got another one um interesting one from someone who hasn't wanted to give their name saying under what circumstances if any do you think sage outputs should remain confidential so i think the principle is that they should be they should be public um uh, and, and what we outputs is a very um abstract word what, what what do we mean by this um they're they're considered views um their deliberations what, what well, it's what, a good question so there there are uh, there are inputs so the papers that they consider they are now published and there are two sorts of outputs uh, one is the the minutes of the the meetings that they have uh, but the second is the is the advice to to government um now what we've recommended is that that advice to government should be published uh, as well not because uh, we think that there is some discrepancy between the two so uh, the the co-chairs of sage uh, patrick vance and chris whitty uh, are people of uh, impeccable integrity and i'm absolutely certain that they take as it were the the minuted conclusions of sage and they reflect them in their advice to government i don't believe that they they reach a, an agreement in sage and then they advise something completely different quite the reverse uh, and indeed it's because uh, of that because i'm certain um that the the advice does reflect their conclusions that there seems to me to be no benefit in in suppressing them and just as with the publication of sage papers and minutes and membership themselves i think it would add to the the sense of confidence uh, in the the process of taking scientific advice mm. so i think the as a as a as a as a principle uh, transparency publish it all prevail. yeah we we're, we're not going to argue with that i have to say it is something we call for in all all our reports but let me follow that then with someone else uh, who also didn't want to give their name saying do you think the formation of the independent sage has been helpful this was a group a group set up um, in 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 some exasperation at the performance of the uh, the official sage yeah well it it follows from what i said that i i don't believe that um that people should should be suppressed or reticent uh, about debating vigorously um the the response to the pandemic including the science of it that is you know, that is how science proceeds uh, in that way uh, i suppose the um 
what I what's slightly kind of wrinkled. There's a wrinkle that um, uh, that I don't warm to, which is the the implication that having an independent sage, if that if that is supposed to carry the implication that the the official sage, as it were, uh, is not independent, then I think that would be unfair and wrong because the it comprises uh, individuals of uh, of caliber, um, of integrity, uh, and is chaired by two people who I think have demonstrated that not just during the crisis but uh, during their careers, and so. Um, I I don't care much for for that inference if it's there, but it may not be. And but it, I think it's we should be clear that um, that it shouldn't it shouldn't imply that. But any groups of people coming together to uh, to discuss and and publish, uh, I think is uh, is fine. Well, that sounds very wholesome in a way, but doesn't this go to the heart of the problem that? A lot of these questions, in, in, in fact, are about, which is what, what are people supposed to make of all this scientific advice? And um, uh, and um, I absolutely agree that perhaps more of it should be uh, transparent, transparent, should be published and so on. But you've got a lot of scientists out there disagreeing with each other. And then you've got independent sage setting itself up to challenge aspects of, of, the, of the way it felt sage was was giving advice to the government. And then you've got the government on the one hand saying it's, it's taking the scientific advice and then... Um, uh, that that is one among many factors, quite understandably. And you've got scientists all over the media. And it, um, yeah, what, what guide can you give either, you know, people watching all this or, or the government about how, how to give people a steer on how to, you know, there's lots of people, as we know, watching more news than ever no. and trying to make up their own opinions on this um, and, um, and have this torrent of scientists uh, from whom to pick their opinions, if you like. What, what are they supposed to make of it? So I think the effect of this problem it has not been a collapse or or even a diminution in the, the standing of science. In fact, quite the reverse. People seeing different points of view, hearing them on the, the radio, yeah. seeing them on the, the TV, has not led people to think, well, no one knows the, the answer. You know, we might as well give up. Quite the reverse. I think it's it reinforces and reflects a, a an adult understanding that people have that the pandemic is is new and unknown, um, and we are learning as we're going, uh, and to to kind of level with people that that you know we're we're progressing towards a deeper understanding and people coming at it from different perspectives and with different theories is is a mature process and the fact that i draw a lot of comforts and um cheer from the fact that people uh, have have responded positively to that frankly for you know, for elsewhere in politics i think it's i think it does demonstrate that you can uh, treat people uh, in an adult way not be always presentational but but recognize complexity and difficulty um, and such that the we probably had a greater prominence of uh, of science in this country, partly because of the arrangements that we've discussed uh, than other countries. Um, and yet, when it came to, for example, adherence to the to the lockdown restrictions that were advised initially, or more recently, and I don't want to uh, 
don't want to anticipate too much a, a process that is already underway, but levels of take-up of the vaccines, at least amongst the over 80s and the over 70s, are amongst the highest in the world. And I can't help but think that that is, uh, at least in part, a reflection uh, on the, you know, the volume and depth of scientific uh, spokesmen and women that people have seen over uh, recent months, and that it has added to, to confidence rather than diminished it. I want to think you're right, and I, I kind of do think you're right. Um, but some people I know, if, if I suggest that kind of thing, say, no, the, the vaccine take-up is a high re- response to the level of deaths in the UK. It's fear, not not trust. Um, well, I don't want and, to and the fact is, we, we, you know, we do have this, as you said, the government's put a lot of effort into science and talking about science and stuff, and yet for many factors that can be beyond what the government has actually uh, itself done, for example, the, the, you know, the amount of traffic, the UK and all, all that kind of thing. But the fact is we do have one of the higher death rates per uh, size of population in the world. So, again, I don't want to uh, to kind of speak beyond what we've properly inquired into and, and you know, what, what is the cause of and what is finally the, the uptake rate of vaccines is something that I'm sure the committee will want to look into and look into rigorously. Um, and, and there are, I'm sure, many different uh, variables that contribute to uh, to the to the rate of uptake. But I, you know, I, I would observe this at least that the the exposure of British public to to scientists over the last uh, few months um, does not seem to have been associated with a a collapse uh, in confidence. Uh, mm-hmm. in the in the vaccines and uh, i would say the opposite i think there has been communicated a sense of what we've been talking about that actually we do have rigorous procedures um and when we've had changes to the dosage regime there have been reasons for it that have been explained and got into and challenged and uh, and data brought to bear and i think this does it does kind of filter through it does permeate and I, my hypothesis, let me put it, uh, this is best, is that the, the exposure to science, uh, to scientists um, has built rather than undermined confidence in scientific advice over Thanks for that. And I, I think we'll, we'll look at things like uh, the take-up of, of technical and scientific education coming out of it. And there are signs that it's turned a lot of people on to science, if, if you like. These things obviously have big cultural roots. Uh, I'm thinking of the, the esteem that... Uh, uh, the French educational establishment holds um, science in, uh, and yet, as you said, that the, um, the, the degree of, um, well, you didn't say, but others have, the degree of uh, vaccine scepticism um, in that country higher than than here. Let me, let me go to another one, though, which touches on an interesting point um, that's flickering around our, our discussion, which is the sort of unelected nature of, of scientific experts. And we've got one um, question that says, is good scientific advice to government too dependent on a few key individuals such as the chief medical officer and government chief scientific officer, even if it's worked well in the current pandemic. And we had David uh, Runciman, um, uh, the political scientist, uh, talking after the annual lecture I gave a couple of weeks ago, musing on on the uh, on the one hand the trust that people do have in, in experts, if you like, but um, the wariness that people may have if they are if they don't run for election. As, as you and your colleagues do? 
Well, I think the first thing to say is that it isn't um, just a few individuals, as we've talked about, and part of the, um, I think, the benefit of disclosing the names of SAGE advisors uh, was that there were many of them um, through different different panels, different committees, but even on the maiden SAGE, um, there, there are a lot of people uh, brought to brought to the discussion. So it's not down to just one or two individuals. I think that's the first thing to say. The second thing to say is that the uh, the, the two principal uh, individuals, uh, Sir Patrick Valance and, and Chris Whitty, uh, their, their approach, as described to us and elsewhere, uh, has been very much to to take a distillation of what this wider group has said, rather than to be, as it were, sort of personal drivers of policy. Um, and the third thing is that, of course, there will be some selection, even with the, the wide group of people that have participated uh, in SAGE. There are others that have not been invited to be on SAGE. But that goes to my point about um, uh, transparency and not being too concerned about voices that disagree with the uh, the advice. There are lots of opportunities now. Uh, the media provides many platforms for people if they've got strong views based on their own research uh, and evidence um, to have an airing for it, let alone the, 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 the more sort of learned outlets that are available uh, uh, in the in the, the scientific uh, world, so uh, so I uh, I think the throughout the pandemic there there's not been a a monopoly or even a kind of narrow oligopoly um, uh, when it comes to uh, scientific advice. I think this is pretty open, and it's good that it is. Hmm. We've got one from Dr. Anusha Panjwani who says, in your point of view, how important is the role of innovative regulations to be prepared for future epidemics or pandemics? I think it's really important. And the, again, one of the, the, the lessons uh, that we must distill from the, the success so far of the vaccine programme has been the, the agility. Everything from the, the clinical trials, the, for example, the MHRA considered the, the evidence from the clinical trials through a rolling review so that they could start to look at the data early rather than waiting for it all to be finished and all produced in a package. And that, that saved several weeks and possibly months uh, in terms of the approval process at no loss of rigor and may well have saved thousands of lives and perhaps, perhaps even more than that uh, across the world by having drugs, having vaccines licensed perhaps a couple of months earlier than they otherwise would have done. So that is, uh, that seems to me to be uh, a very good uh, feature of it. Uh, the fact that the, there was a serious discussion, and again with some agility, uh, on the, the dosage regime, mm. and it would have been, it would have been easy to to say, well, you know, the the clinical trials were on this basis. You know, we can't be reopening that. But the fact that people were willing to challenge their own thinking and say, well, okay, that might be convenient, but um, uh, but actually, would it? Is there any downside to 
to extending the, the, the dosage and would this have benefits? And coming to a point that the, the advice changed, uh, I, think is, uh, I think is commendable. So I think there, there are two areas in which, you know, perhaps traditionally things don't get changed from uh, what they're, you know, they're, how they're originally set and initially set. Uh, I think we've done that. And it may be, we shouldn't, uh, we shouldn't think that just because we've done this incredibly briskly um, over, the, uh, over the last year or so, that actually we might be able to do it even quicker in future. Some of the, yeah. some of the aspects uh, of learning might be to, you know, to distill that practice and really say, okay, are there any parts of this that we could, we could speed up further? Any things that we could do in parallel rather than in sequence that might mean whether it's for new variants of COVID or frankly, some new and unknown future disease that we can have a response that is even more uh, agile and therefore even more life-saving than we've been able to be in this. Hmm. So let me follow that with one um, uh, which follows on from that, uh, from Tom Sass, Associate Director at the the Institute for Government, who says, how do you think science will be changed by this and what could scientists themselves learn from it? So I I think the, the standing of science, I think, has... It can only be further enhanced by this. Um, you know, the fact that that we are in the position now to be vaccinating people against a disease that just a year ago we didn't know there was going to be any protection against uh, is an extraordinary achievement. And you know, just as you know, people were inspired by you know by technological uh, achievements such as sending people to, to space. There will be people who've been engaged, and I think especially young people, um, in the, you know, the extraordinary mission um, to, to find a vaccine uh, against COVID that um, I hope will be uh, inspired to, uh, to, to lead careers in, in science as a result. And so I hope there will be a kind of generational effect there. I think the... The seriousness of science in our national discourse, uh, again, I hope will be uh, enhanced and expanded. It will become more routine that we take publicly uh, scientific uh, advice. Uh, I think there will be consequences, uh, I hope, for the uh, for science funding. It's, it seems evident to me that the, uh, the money that has been invested, both in the, in the discovery research, uh, but also in recent years in things like translating uh, discovery into into practice um, is is literally an investment, and I hope the case for that will be uh, easier uh, in future. Um, and I think some of these uh, these questions of anticipation, agility, regulatory innovation, these have applied during this pandemic and specifically on COVID. But I think they have a wider application that I would like the the government and us all to be able to 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 kind of codify, to recognise, and to apply in other areas uh, of our national life and policy. So let me ask you, just finally, then, whether we should be glad as a country that Pfizer didn't succeed in its uh, takeover bid for AstraZeneca seven years ago. Well, I'm. I'm personally pleased that uh, AstraZeneca is uh, is a 
it's a British company, a British Swedish uh, company, and that is uh, has got deep roots uh, here uh, in this. Um, and so I do think that is, um, I candidly, I'm very pleased that uh, it remained uh, to be here. Um, but the the context of the uh, of the question uh, is, I guess, whether we should take steps to to require that to be the case uh, in future. And that is a uh, that's genuinely a challenging question because the the truth is that um, many most of the the organisations uh, that we that are active uh, in this endeavour uh, are multinational. Um, and so I think you're right, Brahman, and it does shine the spotlight uh, on that. But I don't think we should infer from this um, that requiring all companies uh, simply to uh, to be resident, as it were, in one country uh, is necessarily the the solution. I think it's a I think it's a very important question. I know the uh, the Institute for Government will be. Uh, reflecting on the lessons for it, I'm pleased that AstraZeneca is here, but I think we need to we need to ask that question as to what the, the implications are uh, for the future. But don't let's uh, let's forget that this is going back to what we said before, very much an international endeavour. Well, we will keep asking past and current uh, business secretaries but uh, and see where the answers go. But uh, Greg Clark, thank you very much indeed for those answers over a wide range of, of things. Uh, and the questions went even wider than that uh, um, uh, right across uh, uh, the whole um, every aspect of the, of the pandemic. Um, and apologies to those I, could, I couldn't get in, but uh, we'll try and um, get scoop up um, your questions in, in other, uh, many other coronavirus-related events to come, though that isn't everything we do. But um, for the moment, we will have to sign off. And so thank you very much, everyone, for watching. And thank you very much indeed, Greg Clark. Thank you, Brandon, and thank you, everyone, for your questions. Thank you for listening, and we hope you've enjoyed this edition of IFG Live. Please do subscribe to hear more. And if you'd like to know about our upcoming events, please visit instituteforgovernment.org.uk slash events. Thank you.